Hi, I'm Kat Holbrook, cook, lover of all things British and host of The Doorstep Kitchen. Welcome and thanks for tuning into this show which celebrates the best of British food and drink. Each week I'll be chatting to someone that inspires me by cooking or producing delicious things on our doorsteps. We'll also hear from our expert forager Imogen Davis on what delights you can find right now and I'll be sharing some of my favourite recipes which I hope will inspire you. Coming up in today's episode, I'll give you a quick recipe using courgettes, perfect for a light lunch, and Forager Imogen speaks about mugwort. Before all of that though, I chat to Goat Farmer James. My guest today is a chef, cookbook author, and founder of award-winning food business Cabrito. He has made a huge impact in putting goats back on British restaurant menus and in the kitchens across the country. It's James Wetlaw. Hi, James. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me on. James is in the garden today, so (laughs) just, you know, going back to nature, there's lots of birds singing in the background. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, it's better than having a three-year-old and a five-year-old screen down the line. Exactly. So this is why I'm in the garden. <laughs> um, so, James, Cobrito, your business is all about putting goats, you know, at the forefront. You want to make a mainstream meat. Yeah. Um, because it's been used for centuries, really, and you're trying to get it back in fashion. Why should we be eating goats? Um, because we are a country that consumes goat dairy. And the the fundamental point about goat dairy is that dairy makes meat and people don't really make that connection in order. It's really, I mean, we all understand basic biology in order to induce lactation, you require uh, pregnancy and pregnancy. Again, we all understand basic biology has a very definite outcome. Um, and in, in the goat's case, that is usually twin kid goats. Now, if you're in a dairy system and you are, your entire business model is predicated on producing milk for butter or for cheese or for just for liquid milk, then the problem that you have is that the male goats born on that farm won't produce milk. Again, really basic biology. So what do you do with them? Now, in a beef system, you can get around that by you can use, um, you can use AI or you can uh, cross your dairy herds with meat animals. So a lot of the sort of Angus that we buy in supermarkets today, that isn't actually pure breed Angus. That's half dairy, half Angus beef, which produces good milk and good and good meat. So they get round it in the milk industry. But with because we don't have any cultural history of eating goat in the UK, mm. all these male kids that are born into the UK dairies, they didn't have anywhere to go. Nobody wanted to eat them. So they were euthanized. I've been, like, I've been saying this almost every day in my life for eight years and I still can't get my head around how crazy it is that an entire channel of food supply was allowed to be created on the idea that 50% of the animals born on that farm would be euthanized every year and that's just it's just insane Mm. so that's why we that was the thing that gave me the the idea and the motivation to do something about it because I just thought this is so stupid and there is a solution to it and that solution was obviously restaurants in London and with my background as a chef and stuff I knew that that industry existed and therefore yeah. I knew that maybe like I'd, I'd worked at Great Queen Street in Covent Garden and I was sous chef there and we used to get half pigs or whole pigs and you know we used to buy half a cow a week and we used to buy a whole sheep and butcher them all ourselves so I knew there was a way to sell whole carcasses into restaurants and that's what was the sort of the combination of the stupidity of what I found out about the goat dairy industry, coupled with the experience that I had in the chefing world, gave me the spark to try and do something about it. Okay, so that's sort of where the idea came about. Yeah. And you worked at River Cottage as well. So, and you, you had some goats down there? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's how it all started. So 
a friend of mine called Will and his wife were making Storley goat's cheese for Neil's yard. Right. And I mean, it sounds like the sort of origin story you make up because it all sounds so twee. But I was working in the, I was working in River Cottage and some people that we knew um, had a bit of land that they couldn't cope with themselves because they had lots of other projects. They said, would you like to look after it for a couple of summers and grow some veg? And we were like, yep, we'd love to do that. And being good river cottagers, we thought we'd get a couple of pigs. But the next door neighbours complained and said, please don't put pigs on there because we're trying to sell our house. So we thought it was quite overgrown as well. So we thought, what can we put on this land to clear it? And obviously, when you think about what will eat anything, people assume goats will eat anything. So mm. we asked around at River Cottage and the guy that sold bread in the River Cottage on a Thursday also sold bread at Tordon Farmer's Market on a Friday. And next door to him were Will and Caroline, who made Storley Goat's Cheese. So we went up and saw them and we bought these four goats. We put them on the on the piece of land. And then when they were ready for slaughter, I put them on the menu at River Cottage and they sold really well. Like They outsold the beef on the second day and I was like, hang on a minute, this can't just be this small little tiny town in east devon that has a flavor for goat meat maybe Mm. there's a wider maybe there's a wider market for it that's what sort of that's what kind of fueled the idea of selling it to the restaurants in london but i'd also learned as i said that they the animals are being euthanized if they weren't being put into the food system so Mm. you know and it's and it's a lot of goats you know it's about 60 70 000 goats a year in today's world you just can't justify that kind of uh, that kind of waste so yeah well it's um I feel like it's quite similar to baby calves and veal and how if you were gonna you know have a dairy industry and be drinking cow's milk we need to be eating veal is that would you liken the goat industry to that yeah I mean you've got to get your head around the sizes of the industries in order to understand the difference in the problem though. yeah I mean there's enough there's as much cow's milk produced in a day as there is goat's milk produced in a year mm. so I mean the sizes of the two industries aren't really comparable there's there's another there's a few other things that make it very different as well one is that the cow dairy industry has so much more money in it so they can afford to do things like AI mm-hmm. and they also do have a certain amount of outlets for not just the veal but the but the beef cattle as well because they can they can as I said before, you can crossbreed. So you can have like a Holstein, which will produce loads of milk. But if you cross it with a with an Angus, you can then sell that steak into Waitrose saying it's an Angus steak. Really, it's a it's a crossbreed. But yeah. because of the way that the system's set up. But in terms of in terms of the problems with dairy creates meat and that meat doesn't have a anywhere to go, then yes, the veal carcasses, the arguments are the same. But as I said, the cow dairy industry has found workarounds in a way the goat dairy industry never did. And that's because people do eat cows in the UK and they've never really eaten goats. Yeah. So you, you're trying to create this market and you have been going for about, when did you set up Carito? In 2012, was it? or? Yeah. So it's eight years. Yeah, yeah eight years. Um, and who was the first person who, who took your goat? Who did you sell it to? Jeremy Lee at Quo Vardis. Um, nice. Yeah. Which... Um, <laughs> Jeremy's brilliant and amazing and we've become kind of friends about it and uh, I often say you've never been kissed unless you've been kissed by Jeremy Lee on the doorstep at, at Quo Vardis and <laughs> Jeremy's kind of like Elizabeth David reincarnated you know he has a real he has a beautiful way with British food and with modern European food he has a great touch his presentation is mm. always amazing um, and that really for us when Jeremy took it was kind of like we need to use these chefs and their profile in order to popularize our product. So yeah. Jeremy Lee is well respected and really well known. He's not going to put a rubbish product on his menu. So we were able to then bounce off of the back of Jeremy onto other chefs and other hotels, uh, sorry, and other restaurants in order to sort of push the product out that way, give it some, just give it some grounding and let people think, well, if it's good enough for Jeremy Lee, if it's good enough for St. John, then it's all right on my menu. Yeah, um, yeah. 
and then and then the idea being that that would eventually trickle upwards into supermarkets and you know because the, the foundation stone of cabrito is all of the billy goats into the food system and the only way eventually you're going to do that is to find a way into supermarkets because we won't sell seventy thousand goats a year into restaurants yeah it's got to go mainstream it does yeah and that and you know we, we all see we all roll our eyes when we see gastro pub ready meals on the on the shelves of supermarkets you know and they and the innovation in the food system is coming from restaurants. So the more we do, the more we do, the more we do in restaurants, then eventually it will trickle up and head into supermarkets. Yeah, I think it's a bit like game because um, recently I think there's been much more of a market in game and, and Waitrose have decided to stock it. So we just need goat to get there, don't we? Yeah, and it feels to me like somewhere like Waitrose is the place where it will go because you have a sort of more educated food audience, but not just that, that they... They have people that are head of sustainability at Waitrose and they have people that are head of sustainability at Asda and Tesco. And they are looking across their range and thinking, what can we do to improve our sustainability? Oh, look, we sell goat's dairy products. What are the implications of selling goat dairy products? The implications of doing that is we're euthanizing in our system. We're contributing to the euthanizing of perfectly healthy male animals. Yeah. So there are people that are in these large organizations whose job it is to root out and and combat those problems and i think i also personally i also think it's a huge opportunity because there are first generation second generation people from immigrant families who are quite used to having goat as part of their diets Mm. and you know we're talking about sort of affluent middle class people who would i think if they could find a trusted source of goat meat use it because it's part of their culture in a way that it isn't with kind of traditional British culture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean it's it's used all over Asia, the Middle East, in like lovely Indian cooking with um goat curries and things, isn't it? Everywhere but the UK, more or less. Yeah, and, everywhere in the world. And do you want to know why that is? Do you want to geek out a little bit as to why that is? Yeah, totally. Okay. Well, I'm in Axminster in Devon and Axminster is famous for what? Um, for carpets. Exactly. And carpets are made out of wool, right? Yeah. So, Axminster is also in the Doomsday Book. So in 1082, I think it was, the Doomsday people came here and they took a census of what was in Axminster. And there was 20 goats and four sheep. There was also 20 slaves and four horses and a few other bits and pieces. If you fast forward 250 years, all of those goats will be gone and they'll be replaced by sheep. Because what happened was the UK started exporting a lot of wool. Mm. And the thing about wool is if you're building a proto-economy, it is perfect because it's really light but really valuable, which means it was easily traded. You could put a lot on a bike, a lot on a bike, a lot on a cart, a lot on a horse, a lot on a boat, and you could transport it really easily. So the UK started exporting a lot of wool. A lot of it went to Antwerp, where it was mm. woven into tapestries and into curtains and, and carpets and sold throughout the royal courts of Europe. It became such a big industry that it became monopoly capitalism. Anybody with any land at all. If they had the choice of a small ruminant, your choice would be a goat or a sheep. And they would choose the sheep because it was a three-value item, milk, meat, and the wool. Whereas with the goats, you only got the milk and the meat mm. and leather, but it didn't have any of the value that a, that a fleece did. Even today, the, the Speaker of the House of Lords sits on a wool sack, which is a sign of his prestige and his wealth. And it's something that built Britain into what it is today because it became the thing that we traded. And uh, what that meant was that if you fast forward another couple of hundred years and you introduce literature, you introduce reading and writing into society, 
the only people that are, that are reading and writing anything are rich. And those people are rich partly because they're landowners and on that land they have sheep. So when the first uh, cookbook was written in the English language, which is called A uh, Form of a Curry in 15, can't remember exactly when, for the court of Richard II, I used to know all this stuff, but the book was like three years ago and it's sort of slipped out of my mind. But anyway, when that first cookbook was written, it has 30 or 40 sheep recipes in it and it's only got one goat recipe in it because there aren't any goats in the country people aren't eating them if they are eating them they're in peasant communities where they can't write anything down but the rich have sheep which means the rich eat sheep which means it gets cemented into culture in a way that is still we can still see today like six seven hundred years later Mm. which is fascinating those little moments those little choices made by people sort of 700 years ago have meant that you know me and my little idea 700 years later you're like oh why aren't we eating any goat in this country i wonder why that is and you know and our whole diet is built up around uh it's built up around sheep because mm. of the farming and because of the sort of tradition and the way that we what we consider food and what we don't and i think that's also a that's also played a part like in why we why because if, if you look at all the food that we eat today we were talking earlier on about brigadiers, like the best Indian restaurant in the country. We all love Indian food. We all eat Italian food, Spanish food, you name it, we've imported it, you know, from hamburgers to, to Kung Pao chicken. The one thing that we haven't brought, imported into the UK from all over the world in terms of food is goat. And you have to ask yourself why. And it isn't just that, it, it is that cultural history of never having goats as part of our diet for 700 years. But I think there's also a lot of sort of cultural snobbery and sort of a sort of cultural imperialism at work because we, th- we don't think that that's food for white westerners we think it's food for for poor black and brown people and that i think is something that is, should also change just because it's, it's just wrong you know yeah so you're selling your goats to restaurants and you're getting a great response and lots of top restaurants in London have been taking your goats. Yep. And then, you know, you obviously want to get that out to consumers at home and people to cook with it. So you've done some great food festivals as well, like Wilderness, Abergavenny, Metopia. What's the response been from those like for the to the public? <laughs> There's a couple of responses you can always bank on. One is turning their nose up, like you've just offered them something that they really just don't like at all. Another is, oh, goat, I really like goat curry. Mm. And those are kind of the, the, the stock responses. Or I've eaten or I've eaten goat when I was on holiday or when I was a kid or I was in Cyprus and I really liked it. So mm. people, people have, it's a bit like people have very definite opinions about it. And uh, the one thing that we try and do is get people to try it. Like yeah, anyone yeah. selling a product, just try it because you'll like it if you do. Yeah. And, to, and try and, you know, and, and get people to understand the sort of the politics of and the issues surrounding goat meat. Mm. But when we've done the, the, it's difficult with something like, with something like Metopia or something like um, Ludlow, you know, that, those festivals, they're a self-selecting group of people. You know, they're going to go there because they're interested in food. They're going to go there because they, and they're going to willing to try things maybe that they've never seen before because, and they, they would have read articles in the newspapers. And so they probably have a better understanding of it. And the thing, the people that, and so, we get people to try it. We talk about it. People, we, we normally have a great response. Mm. You know? So much so that we do pretty much all of them now. I mean, we won't do any this year, unfortunately. But we, like last year, we did pretty much all of the food festivals, or or we had chefs that were were cooking our product at pretty much all the food festivals. So it is sort of it is pushing that into the mainstream, and you know that's something that the book helped hugely with because it really does kind of establish it as a as an interest, at least. You know. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a shame that some people would just be like, I, I don't want to try that. Um, yeah, 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 absolutely. And, I, and that is, you know, that's 700 years of cultural history. And also what I said about that kind of, that sort of cultural imperialism, I think people are quite snobby about it. I think yeah. it's not, you know, it's all right in a curry house, but it's not for me. And I think that's it. Yeah, so most people, I would say, if you said, you know, give me a dish with goats, they would say goat curry. But it is incredibly, incredibly versatile. And I've been browsing through your website and there's these <laughs> incredible cuts of meat from, you know, the breast to kid ribs and just such, you know, delicious sort of diverse range. And can you tell me more about the different cuts and how, yeah, how versatile the meat is? Yes, yeah. there's two ways to think about goat. First of all, there's the, there's the exterior goats, which are like the nannies, the nanny goats that are ex-milkers, which are the mutton. And that's what people would have tried in curry houses and in Jamaican curries and in sort of slow cooks. Mm -hmm. And they're great. They are really good, but they're not particularly versatile. So they, they do really require some slow cooking. They're not, because they're females, they don't have that real, you know, goaty, smelly, sort of that thing that people associate with it because they're female animals, they don't have that. So they So they are... That's what people associate with goat, I think. What we sell is, the majority of what we sell is the kids, which are the young animals, which are the like lambs. So yeah. like you said, they do have all of that, that variation of cuts and that comes from them, the carcasses being a similar size to, to lambs. So a good rule of thumb is anything you can do with a, with a lamb, you can do with the kids. You have shanks, you have butterfly legs, you have bone and roll shoulders, chops, best ends, all those kind of things. And I think that that has helped us in many ways because uh it becomes more familiar if you put it in front of somebody and they they can visually recognize it for for an equivalent thing they've had with lamb and it makes it easier for them to cook so when we when we shot the book when we did the photos for the book i had a conversation with a photographer and he said what do you want it to look like do you have any idea and i said well i want it to look normal you know because you're just trying to you're trying to center people's minds on the fact that goat isn't exotic it isn't weird it doesn't require any sort of different types of cooking it, it it will fit into recipes that you already know yes so your book goats cooking and eating came out in 2018 and um it was amazing it won a guild food writers award and it, it won james beard foundation award which is incredible that's <laughs> absolutely insane <laughs> no it's amazing congratulations Thanks. um so your yeah your book does it's just a kind of introduction to goat isn't it and it's got lots of fantastic recipes in there yeah it tries to put goat at the center of the table and yeah liken it to things like lamb so it doesn't sound scary <laughs> i think it was important to contextualize it yeah i think that was like because like as we've covered already people say how do i cook it you know oh i really like it in curry or or it's not for me so those are the kind of three touchstones that you've got when you're writing a book about the about goat and you have to kind of challenge each one of those in a you know, not an aggressive way but in a way of saying yeah it is great in a curry and there are three curry recipes in it because i really like curry and goat's really good in it but there are 70 other recipes of things that have got nothing to do with curry and it's equally good in all of those as well but i also think that if you were if you were interested enough to pick up a goat book and buy some goat meat and try it, you're probably interested in the backstory mm, and mm. the politics and, you know, oh, yeah, we don't eat goat. Why is that? And that was the question that I wanted to answer. And, that, you know, it turned from it turned from the idea of being, you know, three or four pages into being, you know, 15,000 words because that's what happens when you start scratching the surface yeah. of really interesting things, you know, and you make a decision of how far do I take it? Yeah, don't know when to stop. <laughs> Um, brilliant. So what are your, some of your kind of favourite recipes then in the book? 
Um, my favourite recipes in the book. Well, like I said, I'm a huge, huge fan of curry, and I'm a big dairy fan as well. So I did put the the korma in it because that is, I mean, that's a really good entry level. But mm-hmm. um, I have to say, and the thing about this is trying to challenge what what people think about goat meat and what it is, and and what it's going to taste like and feel like in your mouth. My favourite thing to eat is the kibber, which is the raw goat, because. Um, it's the Syrian national dish of sort of raw chopped goat. Mm-hmm. And whenever I cook it, or where, not cook it because it's raw, but whenever I, whenever I do events or whenever I do sort of dinners, I try and put it on the menu because people have this idea in their head, like, as we've talked about before, of what they think goat is and nothing challenges it like basically goat tartare. Yeah, it sounds delicious. Well, it's equal amounts of bulgur wheat and sort of well... Usually use um, either leg or loin, which has no fat or sinew in it, and equal amounts of that hand mm-hmm. minced with a knife until it's kind of. You don't want it to put it through a mincer because the mince is like lots of different bits of meat all cut together. But if you if you chop it with a knife, it remains sort of as one piece. You mix equal amounts of cooked bulgur wheat and this hand chopped goat, and then you mix in a load of herbs and lemon, um, a little bit of a little bit of chili flakes, and then you serve that on sort of bread, and it's it's really delicious. It's very clean. Mm. It's got that kind of high iron notes that you get in raw meat, um, and yeah, and it's very very subtle, and that's the thing that really combats people's preconceptions of what goat is. So, I love those. Um, Neil Rankin's taco recipe is hard to get get beyond because smoked goat is just amazing yeah um so yeah i mean it's use a sort of a strange word here it isn't foreign yeah i mean it's not a. it isn't when you taste it you you might not you know you you won't go wow it's that's the i haven't tasted anything like that before do you mean exactly yeah well my mum is a perfect example if we give it to her and she doesn't know what it is she loves it if i tell her what it is she yeah, won't yeah, touch yeah. it <laughs> you know and that and there's there's you know we all know we all know people like yeah that. and when that and like that is the sort of that's the barrier that you've got to get over with something like goat. And it's insane because, you know, it was the first domesticated animal 12,000 years ago. You know? We've first domesticated farm animal. We have had goats in our humans and goats have had a shared history all the way since we first started farming. And yet here we are today talking about how to get people to eat more of it yeah. because they don't know it or understand it. Well, it's very healthy as well, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something I get told that I don't talk about enough. I mean, it's got half the fat skin chicken it's got like just just about three percent fat which is crazy and mm. it's got a lot of iron a lot of protein i mean part of the reason that i part of the reason i don't really like talking about the sort of the health benefits of it is i don't like to i don't like to have a discussion about food being inherently good or inherently bad for you because i think there's a lot of yeah, bad science yeah. around and i think you know i know it's not sexy to talk about balanced diets and you know if you eat a bit of this eat a bit less of that kind of thing but so I don't really mm. that I I do have a little bit of an aversion to talking about food as as healthy or inherently healthy unhealthy, um, but yeah. But as 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 far as sort of meats go, like it's low, it's low in fat, it's high yeah. in protein, it's got a, it's lot, a lean yeah, meat. Exactly. So it's, yeah, it's high protein. Yeah. It's got it's low in cholesterol. It's you know if those are the things that matter, then then yeah. But yeah, I mean well, the thing we've always talked about is you really should eat it if you eat goat's dairy products because you're contributing to a system that's euthanizing 70,000 animals a year and it's delicious. Mm. You know, and that for yeah. me feels like enough to, you know, rather than getting sucked into a debate about whether some foods are good to you or you're not. So Yeah, it's a win-win. I mean, and, and I think that's the thing that people don't really, you know, su- such as our sort of blinkers around the food that we eat is that people will happily eat, you know, you will go to Neil Jard and bless Neil Jard because they're amazing. And I've 
ordered two boxes from them since the restaurant's closed and I've had two from Marjorie boxes and I've got mm. one from the Courtyard Dairy coming next week because I'm going to eat as much cheese <laughs> as I can to keep these people in business. But they do not make the link between what they do and the euthanizing of the animals. Mm -hmm. And I find that distressing that even today, after all this stuff, there are there are people you go into Neil's yard and you buy goat's cheeses and people have no idea that that purchase is contributing to a system that is euthanizing animals. There are vegetarians that eat goat's cheese thinking they're doing a good thing. Yeah. And they are, you are as responsible for the youth and for the, for the death of an animal in that system as you are, as if you're buying steak from the, from the butchers next door or across the road. So these are things that, that I think are, are hidden and swept under the carpet and, you know, deliberately so the, and I think it's time that, you know, the, the, the responsibility for these things is taken. And as mm. we said before, not just by supermarkets, but, you know, by, by, by everyone that we can change the food system we have by altering our purchasing decisions. Mm -hmm. you know? And if we want to take responsibility for the goat dairy food chain, then we can do that by making goat meat more readily available. Yeah. You know? And to be honest, the people that we get most of our goat, goats from, the is a company called Delamere who produce for co-op and Asda and Sainsbury's and that kind of stuff and Morrison's. And only last week they started, they put an advert for our company on the side of their cartons. Mm. So you, when you go and buy a litre thing of Delamere sem, semi-skimmed goat's milk, it has an advert for Cabrito on the side of it. Nice. Yeah, it's a small thing because Delamere are not in the great scheme of things a big company, but it is a dairy system that's taking responsibility and being proactive about the males in their system. And I think it's a first. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a dairy organization, anyone on the planet that's doing what Delamere do and saying, yes, we are responsible for these male kids. And yes, we want to do something about it. And although I know that over the last few years, there's been some nervousness within Delamere about explicitly linking it to a meat product because a lot of its consumers will be vegetarians thinking that they're doing the right thing. But they are... You know, the, the idea that dairy makes meat is is something that people have to try and understand. Yeah. Delamere have recognised it and that's where that's where that advert's come from. Yeah, that's really brilliant. Because yeah, we always talk about the dairy industry and you know, the meat industry, but actually they're intrinsically linked and 100%. Um, I mean, it'd be nice if you were walking down a supermarket and you were you were at the goat cheese aisle and right next to it there was some goat meat, but I mean health and safety wise it probably wouldn't be allowed. But that's the kind of thing we need, isn't it, to just make that link. Yeah, and it, you know, it's, it's also again going back to the decision about sustainability from someone like Waitrose or Asda or whoever else. These are also economic opportunities. We're not asking people to do things for the, you know, for the good of the planet. If you if you are a dairy farmer, instead of knocking these animals on the head, if you manage to sell them at a twenty percent margin, that gives you an economic, that gives you another income stream and a bit of a cushion against your competitors who might not be doing the same thing. They might still be euthanizing their billies. So. It is not, you know, I'm not going capping hands to these people saying, can you please help me out? I'm saying, look, there's an economic incentive here as well as a sort of, as well as what I think is a moral imperative. I mean, I don't, I don't know how we can justify euthanizing perfectly healthy animals. It just, it just, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, definitely. Um, so if the, my listeners want to find out where they can buy goat and check out recipes, um, I will link um, your website in the show notes. So you can just head there um, and have a look at all the different sort of products and boxes you can get and just try out cooking with goat at home. Yes, I highly recommend it. it I mean, and it's one of the things, you know, that your listeners and people that are generally interested in food, 
the thing about goat, you you think to yourself, oh well, you know, what am I going, what am I going to cook with it? One of the great things is that it will, because it's a brand new central ingredient, it will force you to expand your repertoire. Mm. You may have to cook something you've never cooked before, and for me, that's really exciting, and it's an opportunity to sort of to to do more things and to open you up to maybe new cuisines. Maybe you can look at some of the, I don't know, some of the if you've not cooked curries before, if you've not cooked um, Trankan food before, if you've not, there will be stuff in there that you've never done before. Like I personally. Using goat meat is a great way to master two really important things. Biryani. <laughs> I think you've got to learn to cook a good biryani and a good pilaf. And your kids must love it as well because, I mean, there's probably goat meat in the fridge the whole time. Um, <laughs> how old are your kids? Uh, Mika's three and Elwood is five. Okay. Um, and we've just, we've, we just handed in a manuscript for another book and they've just wow. spent... Uh, it's not goat two, unfortunately, but, um, <laughs> but they've, so they've just spent the last six weeks going through recipe testing so they have they've eaten an awful lot of good barbecued food in the last in the last six weeks so yeah they're 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 getting yeah we're gonna when when i've finished here we're gonna go downstairs and make dinner and i'll get them rolling out the pasta in the pasta machine so yeah we've got them uh, great got them got them cooking already yeah brilliant well done um and lastly i just want to ask what your favorite ingredient is at the moment um as every episode i create a recipe based on my guest's choice Oh, man, that is such an impossible question. I know, sorry. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a di- it, is, it is really difficult. But there there are some things that don't come around very often. And something like a Vadura Mista is one of my favourite things, especially on a barbecue, because you get the sort of smokiness into it. So I would actually say something like fennel, which is around now, and courgettes that are around now. Yeah. Um, if you can get hold of some Isle of White tomatoes as well. Oddly, for someone that runs a meat company, July and sort of August feels like a time where you should be eating less meat and a few more veggies because they're just everywhere. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'd have at the moment. Yeah, I don't think there's anything better than a grilled courgette. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it is so good on the barbecue. Also, the other thing I like to do with them is eat them raw. So just mm, take a yeah. take a peeler to them, make them really thin, and then kind of macerate them in, in, lemon, juice. in, in lemon juice. And then just that and... Well, there's three, three ways. I can't shut up when I start talking about food. I'm really sorry. Right, there's, a, there's a recipe in the Morrow book where you slow cook them down till they're mush, which is absolutely amazing. It's, it's a fantastic recipe. You basically, knob of butter or oil, chopped up courgettes, put a lid on it and leave it for an hour. And they sort of steam down till they completely collapse. So what I, what I did last year when we had a courgette plant that was just dishing them out right left and centre in the garden, I used to do like really terrible way of phrasing it but three ways so you do them really mushy on toast and then you have the the, the macerated ones in oil mm. and then you have the grilled ones as well so you've got like three different ways of eating them and they all taste different yeah and they all have their own textures and it's mm, delicious yeah. okay perfect i think i'll go with courgettes you can me some great ideas <laughs> yeah, and i will um either still one of yours or yeah you can use that to inspire have a, look at that one. a recipe it's amazing and it's great that like, sounds you, really good it's also great you just shove a spoonful of it in a pasta yeah. Then, oh, it's brilliant. I'm going to make that. I'm going to go and make that. Yeah, do here. it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, it's so lovely to talk to you, James. My pleasure. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure, as you can tell. Today, I'm making courgette fritters. James gave me so many great ideas for making the most of the courgette glatte, but for a tasty and quick lunch, nothing quite beats a courgette fritter. This recipe serves two and only takes 10 minutes. Grate two small courgettes into a mixing bowl and stir in one tablespoon of flour. 
Add the zest of one lemon, half a block of feta or British alternatives such as Graceburn, and a knob of salty hard cheese like Pecorino, Parmesan, or again, the British um, Sussex Charmer and Berkswell are brilliant. Add a handful of freshly chopped herbs, I like mint and basil, and lastly add two eggs. Give the mixture a good stir and season with pepper and a touch of salt. Add a glug of oil to a frying pan and turn the heat on. Add large spoonfuls of the mixture to the hot pan and on a medium heat fry the fritters for a couple of minutes on one side and then carefully flip. And that's it, eat them immediately. I like a side salad of marinated lovely British tomatoes which are so good at the moment. You can visit doorstepkitchen.com slash recipes slash courgettes for the recipe. I've also linked the page in the notes under this episode. Now we're moving on to speak to our expert forager, Imogen Davis, from London Restaurant Native. She joins us every week. Hello, foragers. This week, I've been enjoying the punchy, sage-like flavour of mugwort. Growing up to about five foot tall, mugwort grows well in disturbed soils along road and train tracks and edges of woods, so I'm sure you will have passed some, perhaps without even realising. It's used as a natural yellow dye, an insect repellent, and of course, a great ingredient to cook with. In Europe, it was actually used to flavour beer before hops were widely cultivated. This edible plant is often overshadowed by its lookalike wormwood, which is used in the production of absinthe, but examination of the leaves shows how to differentiate between the two. Mugwort leaves are green on the top and white underneath with pointed tips and purpley reddish stems, while wormwood leaves have a silvery top and bottom and the flowers are a lot more fancy looking. Mugwort leaves are an aromatic herb and they can be slightly bitter when they're eaten raw or cooked, so they're best paired with a sweet dessert or fatty rich sauce. The leaves are great dried and used for a tea which was historically used as a dream enhancer and the leaves have even been used as a tobacco substitute. Because mugwort grows so well in disturbed soil, do be sure to choose carefully that the area isn't too close to heavy traffic or other pollutants. And also, it's not suitable for pregnant women, as it is said to have an effect on stimulating blood flow around the uterus. So that's all for now. Thank you so much for foraging along with me. I hope you've enjoyed. Thanks for that, Imogen. And thank you for all your foraging tips and insights over the last 10 episodes. That was the last episode of Series 1 of The Doorstep Kitchen. It's been a joy speaking to the chefs and producers at the heart of our incredible food, but there is so much more to learn. I hope to bring you some more episodes of The Doorstep Kitchen in the future. Meanwhile, you can stay up to date with seasonal recipes on Instagram at The Doorstep Kitchen or subscribe to our newsletter via the website at doorstepkitchen.com. Bye for now!